one of the last compositions of uh, ramdas swami before he left his uh, mortal body in 1681 is called anandavana bhuvani where he is basically dreaming of an india where uh, mughals have been destroyed and you know, hindus are again ruling india and uh, kashi vishwanath is again in place and you know, so on and so forth so this hope was given to hindus by this endeavor of this particular individual who against all odds managed to fight off five armies and establish a kingdom in all its senses he brought in ancient not just rituals but way of thinking ancient polity value value system he made sure he adapted himself and updated himself on technology front cavalry gunpowder so on and so forth navy most importantly navy so on and so forth thirdly he he tried and actively encouraged the bringing back alienated indians back to indic folds so various people who had been forcibly converted were converted back to hinduism by at the orders of chhatrapati uh, and his successors it continued throughout the existence of this hindavi swarajya 2.0 if i if i may call it so almost all five six points six aims were attacked at at least attack and um, to large extent achieved we have known uh, from uh, nilesh og ji's research and earlier uh, dr pv vartak's research it the it, it can go way 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 back way back so hence rightly so we have been calling our civilization and our way of life as sanatan sanatana dharma sanatan literally comes from three sanskrit word roots sat is primordial consciousness a is from and tan it's a continuous unbroken stretch now we we stretch a string of we stretch spring or we stretch some metal piece it, it becomes thin it becomes elongated like it's like a thread the continuity is the key which is conveyed by this word called sanatan we will not be going to as far as back to sat because sat is as our traditions and our shruti is called sapurusha it's it's un, no it was before everything else so we are we are not going to go there in the course of this this long history and long existence long continuous and unbroken existence we have we had to face numerous challenges i mean it's part of life uh, nobody is free of problems applies to civilizations also various civilizations have faced suffered rosen crumbled made various kinds of responses to threats uh, which they have encountered in their lifespan short or long somehow india is or dharmic tradition is one of the only ones which is surviving which was there when when ancient sumerians were in you know in 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 the in the world ruling ancient babylonians were there ancient chinese were there ancient romans were there we were there too and today when none of them are existing in their original form we still are existing in our original form that is due to we managed to evolve continuously and and give a timely a timely response to emerging threats with you no know, that ability to continuously adapt and change 
while not losing out on our essence the the, the sanatanatva the continuity of unbroken heritage that has made this civilization i mean i am a hindu so i'll be biased but even if i look it look at it as a neutral uh, observer if i can that this 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 ability itself is very fascinating nobody it's it's not possible but it's it's really fascinating that why egyptians and iqbal has said uh, roma or misra uh, all these uh, ancient civilizations have no, they have ceased to exist we ab tak magar hai baki naam o nishan hamara for some reason there is something which enables us to be nitya nutan i mean we use this word very frequently in our uh, our religious discourses when we are describing shri krishna or shri ram or or any devata one who is sanatan who is ancient and ever evolving ever new nitya nutan then sanatano nitya nutana these two words actually describe hindu way of life since antiquity until now so how we have evolved and what responses we had in no uh towards the stimuli which were being poked at us by various factors be it environmental factors be it so anthropological factors like invasions migrations etc etc and i'll be focusing more on last 1000 years because um we have not been tested as vigorously or as rigorously as we have been in last 1000 years the way no before that because before that um there was no ideological threat or ideological invasion which could uh, which struck at our very roots I mean, we can say buddhism was one of them buddhism in my opinion was the strongest uh, the strongest uh, opponent if you can if i can call this word to uh, astic the orthodox hindu uh, way of life but it had it did not have a military angle it did not have a angle of uh, warfare all that happened was a shastrarth between few acharyas maybe very heated debates maybe few cuss words thrown around but at the most that's it nothing there was no genocides which were happening just because uh, they people disagreed on whether atma is eternal or atma is going to end when we attain nirvana you know these are very nuanced nuanced discussions in last 1000 years the choice was to either accept or die or convert and our ancestors who i mean those who are continue to be hindus today or they call themselves hindus today by hindus i mean as the way indian constitution defines hindus buddhist jain sikhs we are hindus today because our ancestors fought on they resisted they compromised they did n number of uh, strategies they employed n number of strategies just to ensure that the heritage the unbroken eternal heritage continues to be passed on to next generations so we evolved and we had a strategic mind so we are we are going to see how it how that thing was done in last 1000 years i have just made this uh, small flow chart it's slightly cluttered but i'll i mean I, there are too many variables i had to clump uh, them up in one slide the the phrase pursuit of happiness is quite popular i mean it, especially it found when it found its mention in a preamble of american constitution every every man has right to pursue happiness so the 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 initial opening lines of chanakya arthashastra describe basically 
the primal primo primary primo primordial drive of every human being or other every living being is to find sukha sukhasya moolam dharma and he goes backwards from sukha the ultimate aim of everybody or every living being is to attain some sukha fulfillment happiness content how the root of that sukha is dharma dharma is that all encompassing system which is just a and b which addresses this drive to attain sukha of everybody not at the cost of a particular group or a particular person some as a solution set as we call it in mathematics nash equilibrium for people who know game theory an equilibrium wherein the drive to achieve sukha of every component in ecology is addressed that set of solutions is called dharma so what is what is at the root of dharma as in who ensures that dharma is established in a given you know, in land is the state rajya and what is the root i mean how will what will enable a rajya to ensure dharma is established so that everybody attains sukha that when the ruler has control over his desires indriya jaya see the root of rajya is not raja the root of rajya is indriya jaya of raja the raja has to have the indriya jaya he has to have control over his basic desires because he has absolute power physical power to give or take life that is the ultimate power a human beings bestow upon their rulers to right to life so hence it is most critically important for a raja to to have achieved indriya jaya how to achieve indriya jaya acharya says by vinaya humility a raja has to inculcate the quality of humility if one is humble indriya jaya becomes easier and how to achieve the humility it is vriddhopa seva vriddha here nazar doesn't mean old people it means those who have attained excellence in either knowledge or experience or you know elders not just age wise knowledge wise or experience wise heed to their experiences it has also a deeper meaning adhyatmic meaning wherein vridho vridha means sadguru or guru who is um, shrotriya and brahmanishna so he has this again is coming and he embodies atman he embodies parabrahma so again the chain is coming directly from parabrahma to sukha of each and every individual this chain is very important while we will be discussing only it it only in terms of you know this worldly affairs politics polity this is also applicable to even our adhyatmic lives or adhyatmic lives not just bhautik lives sukha is is threefold or fourfold but and this green uh, blocks indicate this more individual and the blue ones are more polity wise sukha for few is kama desires fulfillment of desires is sukha for some some people for some people achieving moksha or liberation is sukha for some people earning arth earning wealth earning power is sukha but all this has to be within the ambit of dharma if one tries to fulfill his desire or achieve moksha or earn wealth outside the ambit of dharma he becomes adharmic and hence asurik and our stories are replete with examples where gods and you know rakshasas have fought each other for establishment of dharma asura asura are basically those who try to fulfill their sukha disregarding dharma 
that's a simple distinction between manav deva and asura this is the essence of hindu polity so every hindu king or every hindu polity need not be king even republics had to ensure that a, a system is in place wherein every component in the society we are talking about humans now is able to pursue dharma artha kama moksha by by being in the ambit of raj dharma to ensure this is in place is the primal duty of a raja or a polity this connect with sanatana is most important and raja is symbolized by these two devatas in our tradition the first is varaha we know the story of varaha third avatar of shri vishnu um hiranyaksha kidnapped vedas and was drowning prithvi so vishnu took incarnation of varaha and she he, he liberated or he took up uddhar uddhar is the right word i don't know how to translate uddhar into english to take up to hold up is a way translation he held up prithvi from drowning uh, over his tusk and this this particular sculpture is uh, from rani ki vaav in gujarat most fascinating place varaha is called bhupati and vishnu's wife since then is bhudevi so vishnu has two wives lakshmi shri devi and prithvi bhudevi so hence raja is also called bhupati and even in in in, in hindu tradition abhishekta king or a coronated king is the avatar of shri vishnu he is the representative of vishnu who has duty uh, it ordained to him by vishnu to uphold dharma in his domain so what is king is varaha how a king should be is shri ram even here we see this couple of vishnu and bhudevi we know sita ji was daughter of prithvi so she embodies prithvi prithvitva so vishnu and bhudevi vishnu and bhudevi this this couple this purusha prakriti couple is seen in these two avatars of vishnu what is king is bhupati varaha how this bhupati should behave is shri rama and sita the ability or the emphasis of every uh, hindu politician or a hindu polity or hindu king since again since first king reign or until narendra modi ji uh, has they, they they try to seek this connect to sanadanatva the unbroken continuous lineage this this connect is most emphasized upon by those who are who have been rooted hindu kings they seek the validation of their rule in shruti smriti purana and itihas the the value system which is embodied in our shruti purana is present in every rooted hindu king and this particular rucha from rugved prithvibhya samudra paryantaya ekaraniti this land from mountains to ocean is one rashtra now there is no mount this land until the oceans is one rashtra this particular phrase is from aitariya brahman in rugved but has embodied and has shaped the concept of geography in hindu mind since antiquity since from time immemorial I mean, we know we believe that vedas are apurushaya so this line is before time has been there before time as per our belief hindu belief system so since then this land from mountains to ocean is one rashtra has been drilled time and again we we chant it every day after after aarti every aarti especially maharashtra and south of india we sing a hymn called mantra pushpanjali this line is from is chanted every day from there so a 
Hindu tradition or Sanatanatva is ancient. It is unbroken. It is ever evolving and new. It has validation from Shruti and Shruti. Our the role models of this validation are Varaha and Ram, and the fact that the land from mountains to ocean, in simple words, from Himalayas to Indian Ocean, this Indian subcontinent is one Rashtra. This 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 sentiment, this line, has been shaping the subconscious way Hindus has been have been looking at geography and history and politics. There are various modes. I mean, in the same hymn, Mantra Pushpanjali. There is a very beautiful verse which describes various political models which are uh, extant in Indian geography. So while India is one Rashtra, there are various Rajas or various governance models, various states. The hymn goes this way: Om Swasti Samrajyam, Bhujam, Swarajyam, Vairajyam, Parameshtham Rajyam, Maharajyam, Adipatyamayam. So there are various modes of governance. Dr. K. P. Jayaswal, who has written a beautiful book on Hindu polity, has has categorized Hindu political units or Hindu political models in these three domains: Adipatya, Sarvabhauma, and Samrajya. Adipatya is complete suzerainty, overlordship over dominant or of a dominant or a weaker power. I mean, there are various rulers where a king, while doing basically, there are rulers from Rajasthan. Which state that uh, I am enveloping my neighbor's kingdom and making him my protectorate or my vassal or my I am I am overlord of it. So adhipatya is basically overlordship. There is one supreme one high king and there are various no, small kings. Doesn't matter how big the area is. There can be an adhipati of Magad. There can be an adhipati of Vidarbha. There can be an adhipati of Rajputana. So on and so forth. sarvabhouma is basically controlling entire geography of india ability or wanting to to dominate or to control from mountains to ocean prithvi samudra paryanta ya ekaraiti to make so it can be a very weak monarchy the kings the states the kingdoms which he had conquered remain and continue to exist as they are but all of them except this particular king as a sarvabhouma so this is more of a model of ashwamedha chakravarti model and third one is samrajya collection of state imperial federation we will see more of the third one as we go on because that is what hindavi swarajya was it was a federation and this is that is what modern india is today it's a more of more or less a federation with a very strong center this these are basically the three models in which the jayaswal has categorized various governance models of hindus as i said there is concept of insiders and outsiders once once this is established a we are we are from uh, we are believers of shruti shruti pranavata dharma sanatan dharma it is a purusha it has all the unbroken lineage in etc etc the it manifests itself into the name the very name of our country. Hindus have not called India as India. The most popular name for India, when we even when we are talking in our native language, is Bharat or something similar, Jambudvi, Aryavart, so on and so forth. The Puranic uh, reference for the name Bharat and its geography is this famous verse from Vishnu Puran: "The country to the north of Indian Ocean, south of Himalaya, 
is one is is called Bharat, and the descendants of Bharat Bharat king live there called Bharati or Bharatiyas. So Indian the endonym or endonym of India for Indians has always been Bharat or its no or or similar here. Exonym has always been pertaining to Sindhu River. So Sindhu River in Sanskrit became Hindu Persian because there is a sahar. S N H uh, uh, interchange in Persian and ancient Persian, Persian ancient, ancient Sanskrit. It became Indus in Greek, India in English. So land to the east of Indus River is India. So India, Hindu, all these words are basically geographical uh, determinants. They determine India or they consider India as geography, wherein Bharat considers India as a Bhudevi. This is a very important, albeit subtle, uh, difference in a way how Indians or how Sanatan Dharmis look at India. It also manifests nowadays, especially in last hundred years, as uh, Mother India, no? Goddess India, Goddess in a form of India. This, uh, whilst we have this concept of Bhudevi, we had this Devata of Bhudevi since ancient ancient times, since Bande Matram, since Bankim Chandra. It has. Got on a new form that is the modern map of India. We have this Devi with flag of India and lion. It's a very popular motif. It has aroused various Indians to uh, freedom struggle. So Hindus or Sanatan Dharmis look at Bharata as a Bhudevi, while outsiders, I define outsiders as non-Sanatan Dharmis. They might be citizens of India, but non-Sanatan Dharmis view at India, view to view, look at India as a geographical entity. This is reflected also in Churchill's infamous statement: "If India is a nation, so is Equator." They didn't consider India as a nation. It is still reflected in various left liberal narratives that India was made a nation by its East India Company. It was a confederation of warring warlords before that, since antiquity. This has in direct diametric opposition to how Indians have been looking at India since since the same antiquity. So this distinction is most important, and it will it will play out. As we go ahead in our in our story, now I got this beautiful map. Uh, they have rendered it in such a way that they have removed all water from the Indian subcontinent, and it shows how the geography of India looks. So this is famous. Uh, I am forgetting the description. It is definitely from Sruti from Vedar that um, Himalaya with his two hands is embracing Prithvi. So it looks like you no know, Himalaya is. Basically, embracing Bharata from all three sides, and of course, there is there is uh, ocean on other three sides. So it is basically a barricaded geography with completely different eco. I mean, it's, it's directly, strikingly visible when we look at this particular uh, map of India. The no Tibetan plateau, Central Asian, Afghanistan, Iranian plateau, this Hindu Kush, Himalayas, Arakanid mountains, which are again arm of Himalayas. And the ecosystem, which is enclosed within this, is so visually different. It is not uh, impossible to think that uh, a unique civilization evolved here. It was connected with others, of course, but it it was able to retain its uniqueness thanks to this geography. And this geography plays extremely important role. As I said, even previously, Puthibe Samudra Parantaya Ekraiyadi. This particular ducha it makes it, it impacts on your mind when you see this particular photo. 
this prithvi this 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 land from mountains to ocean is one one nation the geography has ordained it it has to be one nation it meant it has been one nation it doesn't only have a scriptural uh, backing it has a geographic and hard physical backing to it so more or less the politicians or a polity or um, the geopolitics of india has evolved in such a way that there are basically three zones one is beyond himalayas either towards hindukush or tibet tibet and himalayas are still very sparsely populated and it's difficult to traverse even today it was almost impossible in pre uh, aviation era but khyber pass and central asia has always been uh, accessible and bolan pass etc so the lands beyond hindukush or beyond himalayas to northwest is one in one buffer the the region between hindukush and sindhu river is one buffer and sindhu se east mein everything to the east of sindhus is the core heartland let's say indo gangetic plains as we call it and peninsula of india that has been the core land or core uh, geography which uh, hindus have always tried to save at all costs whenever of course they always retreated they expanded their cycle of expansion retreat has been seen many times but they have more or less tried to maintain ki at least sindhu tak ka zameen should remain with us that has been that had been the drive of various hindu politicians or uh, indic politicians second important ki what was happening in the outer tier there is this very very beautiful metaphor given to this by gs sardesai who has written riyasat uh, 11 volumes of medieval history ki step are the anthill of nations ki there are wave after wave of tribes coming out of step and spilling over into various settled societies they have not just invaded only india they have invaded iran they have invaded roman empire they have invaded china they have invaded india they have invaded middle east as in uh, babylonia and mesopotamia so there is wave after wave of uh, horsemen with bow and arrow so uh, mounted archers and a nation at war where women and men all fight there are more horses than men this particular motif has been playing out in all the all the four five settled civilizations of the ancient and modern world ancient world again and again so even india here had our own share of invasions from central asia the earliest one is uh, mentioned in vedas we call it dasharaj nirudha i think uh, mr sanjay dikshit ji spoke about it briefly few days ago on sangam how the how the confederacy of 10 kings who were defeated on the banks of ravi river uh, by a king called sudas with the help of indra uh, he repulsed the invasion invasion of this confederacy of 10 kings who then went to iran and how zoroastrianism it's a bifurcated from the indian core heartland of uh, vedic civilization so we have this example then there are examples in mahabharat even in post buddha history there have been indo greeks settled in afghanistan then there, there have been scythians kush uh, shakas kushans huns wave after wave every every couple of centuries later there is a wave of you no know, big nation spilling over from uh, western or eastern steppe being thrown away by their predecessors after huns there were turks there were mongols afghans that wave has been incessant until panipat 
1761 where we will be stopping our story today the man that is one of the most important defining achievement of panipat that panipat stop put a stop to this invasion for good on punjab he started again with the rise of taliban in 1990s but there are the reasons are different but panipat was a turning point in history of india from a very long perspective that at least in last 2 300 years there has been there not there hasn't been any central asian invasion on india how did indians dealt with these you no know, these waves which are coming over and over again so they have, i mean i have seen the what has said there are six fold challenges in front of a hindu polity when dealing with external invasion its external invasion is not always in form of military it always has a military angle but it also has a ideological angle it has a cultural angle it has a civilizational angle it has a economic angle so all these multi pronged angles are there when civilization is attacked by another civilization the challenge in front of hindu polity or the stakeholders who were at the position of ensuring the relevance of hindu polity at different times different points of time in last one year has been this six fold a to maintain that sanatanatva sanatanam nitanatva in changing times while adapting to changing times so while we have to adapt we have to hold on to that continuous lineage that thread which has come to come down to us from sat sat adam second is to once some foreign power or a foreign civilization or a foreign army has installed itself in india the first aim is to overthrow that influence using of course military or you know, various means various means available or at our disposal first is to overthrow it now in last 1000 years and until hunas if we had achieved these first two we were done there was no lasting impact on other four points but in last 1000 years when abrahamic invasions i mean when central asians became abrahamic when turks have been invading india before they became muslim they were buddhists before they were hindus they have been the shamanic religions which they have been following mongols were shamans so while they were invading as shamans or you no know, buddhists or their native religions the the remaining four points were not a problem or they they didn't matter to anyone who is the stakeholder in ensuring hindu polity it didn't matter to guptas or you no know, satavahanas or harshavardhan etc abrahamic religions added the angle of religion to the military and the economic invasion so the the very outlook of some people was changed due to conversion i call them alienated indians for example pathans have been they are part of the buffer zone between sindhu and hindu kush which could be called pakistanistan shahi empire patanjali panini all these rishis were from peshawar region shilalinda so that region so we may call them precursors of pathans modern day pathans but when pathans converted to islam and when they started invading i call them alienated indians so the second aim of any hindu polity is to defeat after they have defeated the visible foreign power one who is outside the buffer zone they have to defeat their uh, our own people who have been alienated and which are controlling territories of india but ruling 
with a mindset of a alien ideology pathans after becoming muslims are alien indians so on and so forth turks and moguls are outsiders britishers were outsiders and they are visible out foreign powers but when indian people tipu was alien indian he was basically a kannadiga or no i i mean no matter how or what lineage every every ashraf in india tends to see the kureish or no whatever but more or less they are converted indians so these are alienated indians who are wanting to influence the policies of india as per their new ideology so the second aim is to defeat and overthrow these the rule of these alienated indians third is to reconquer the territory occupied by alienated indians in modern day the people residing in pakistan or bangladesh they are indians they, are, they have been hindus once but they are now alienated but they are right now squatting on territory which is part of what we call our bhudevi our mother india same with no why did why did sadashiva bhau went north it was to take, take care of bengal nawab no sujaudola najibuddola so on and so forth they were alienated indians squatting on indian territory so aim was to reconquer india from occupation of these alienated indians influenced by foreign ideologies for fifth is to establish indic system of rule in swarajya hindavi swarajya the ability to rule our land as per our value systems the whole drive of chhatrapati shivaji maharaj to 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 do what and to to start his uh, endeavor is to basically he has very plain words said i want to liberate all my tirthakshetras and seven rivers to to liberate seven rivers rivers and our tirthakshetras and bring them under hindu fold that has been the stated aim of hindu swarajya of shivaji maharaj so to establish a indic system he reformed the language he reformed the governance models he he took the ideals from way back you know ashtapradhan mandal how many amartya should be there there are various chapters in our various arthashastra related books ki how many ministers should be there in the cabinet so he decided that there should be eight ministers so all these ideas are sanatan they are very old and shivaji maharaj was trying to bring that you know while adapting materially in this worldly fashion to show the continuity from sanatan sanatan nitin nitinatva so this is the fifth aim of hindu polity stakeholder in any given time and last one is to bring back the alienated indians back to indic fold it has been done mostly by various gurus uh, various rulers shivaji maharaj did it bappa raval rajput did it deval rishi and varshikar medhatithi did it swami shraddhananda did it in modern times we we call it colloquially call it ghar vapsi it is basically to bring to bring back the alienated indians and make them look at the world again from hindu lens or indian lens these six challenges or um, aims or to do list has been on the menu of every ruler who has tried to install a self rule of indians on india in last thousand years and who has been openly you know openly abashedly uh, speaking that i am doing this for you know for hindu swaraj there are various attempts at by various players at different points of time I mean the earliest ones were earlier Rajputs and Chalukyas when Arabs invaded India in 700s. So there is very famous battle of Rajasthan, Bappa Rawal, uh, Nag Bhat, various uh, kings from Chalukyas in south, Rashtrakutas. There was almost 100-year war for Rajputana 
and Sindh. And uh, Indians or Indics managed to repulse Arabs be- beyond Sindhu River. Sindh as a territory was gone. But apart from Sindh, rest of the Punjab and other regions were recaptured. And not just recaptured, the converted Indians were converted back to Dharmic Fort whilst their occupation was there. And this is happening at the height of Arab uh, um, Arab expansion when they conquered Spain and they were about to conquer France in seven, in Battle of Toulouse. That is a time where Index were able to withhold that time and not let it cross and make and squat on any more territory than uh, than Sindh. Sindh was when it was if I can use the word sacrifice or it was we were not able to get it back then. It's a historical fact. It continued to be so. There's a famous example of Battle of Baharaj, where Ghazni's uh, nephew was defeated, one zero three three A.D. The second uh, most important resurgence or attempt to reclaim India or part of India and make it again Indic is Vijayanagar. It clearly had political and religious motivation. The 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 popular story of the founding of the empire goes that Tughlaq had convert forcibly converted these two brothers, Adiharai and Bukharai, and enslaved them. They ran away, came to Vidyaranyaswami, who reconverted back to them back to Hinduism, and they were the they are the ones who established this glorious empire called Vijayanagar, which which kept South India uh, intact more or less from uh, Central Asian Islamic invasions for 300 years. It's a huge achievement, especially in the time where the cavalry-dominated armies of North and Northwest were ravaging and the Hindu armies in South India could not bear or could not rear horses in as many numer- you know, in numbers and quality. So, in spite of all that, they managed to keep South India more or less intact. It's a huge year. And they not only kept it intact, they pioneered the resurgence of Hindus in uh, those 300 years. So, it's again a fascinating uh, part of uh, Indian history. Parallel to that, was happening was uh, Sisodhiyas of Mewat. Uh, most prominently, Rana Kumbha and Rana Sangramjit Singh. Sangramjit Singh was, I mean, I will call him uh, an attempt to make a Hindavi Swarajya 1.0. He was, I mean, this close to, he had encircled Lodhis. He had the necessary guile and valor to make the enemies fight with each other. So he helped or rather remained calm, remained uh, neutral when Babar was defeating Lodhis. So, and meanwhile, he was consolidating Rajputana, Gujarat, modern day MP Malwa, so he was about, I mean, he was the most, the closest Hindus came in North to oust, to achieve goal number one and two and three of the six-fold goal. To A, throw out the foreign power while retaining Sanatanatva and defeat the alienated Hindus, Lodhis. Again, but Battle of Khanua happened and uh, in that one battle, the fortunes of Rana Sangha changed and maybe in the history, I will not be going into detail of that. But it is very important because Vijayanagar and Rana Sangha, Sisodhya, they, they form the primer for what Shivaji Maharaj did 100 years later. That is the, hence I said, we cannot look Marathas in on its own. They have this tradition of 
Rajputs, Vijayanagar, Sisodias, Sisodia Rajputs, which fueled their expansion and their uh, their endeavors. The experiences of the earlier three iterations helped them a lot to overcome. You no, know, as I said, to make new mistakes and not repeat the same mistakes again and again. So, if Hindavi Swarajya 1.0 was uh, Rana Sangha's Sisodia's uh, Sisodia Empire, the Hindavi Swarajya the 2.0, let's say, was Shivaji Maharaj. I have spoken about him in detail in my previous talk. I mean, just to give a gist of it, started at age of 14. I mean, who a 14-year-old boy taking the oath that I will liberate this Pune, this is this earth or this is uh, my country from uh, foreign rule and liberate all my holy places and holy rivers from the occupation of uh, Yavans. Yavans is the, the word which we use for Islamic invaders in, in medieval times. It's, it's fascinating. He created history. He reinstalled or reinstated various ancient Hindu practices, including the Rajabhishek coronation as per South rituals, Indra Bishay, uh, which was uh, a statement on its own for Hindus then get Kali Yuga has ended, Satya Yuga has arrived, and Vishnu has incarnated on the earth. The result of this was a bloody 27 year old war between Mughals and Marathas, in which Hindavi Swarajya emerged victorious, and uh, Bajirao and subsequent uh, leaders reconquered India from domination of from Islamic domination after almost 700 years. It's a fascinating history. I'll be briefly touching into it in this talk. I have dealt with it in detail in my previous talk. And six, after Panipat, they started, they got this uh, relief. They managed to coalesce into some fast, no, a fighting units. And after Maharaja Ranjit Singh's emergence, uh, they formed a very formidable empire, albeit a very short-lived one in Punjab, wherein they continued the drive towards Northwest, started by Marathal and conquered Kabul after 1000 years. I mean, last one, the last time saffron flag floated, was unfurled on Kabul was when perhaps uh, Jaipal Shahi or no, Shahi dynasty was ruling before uh, Ghaznavis and Sabuktajin invaded Ghazni. So, it's a huge uh, achievement on part of Sikhs to have continued that, that trust of pushing the foreign ideologies and the adherence of foreign ideologies outside the natural frontier in the which is embedded in the hindu mind of hindu kush no land up from himalayas to ocean the conser- the, the modern freedom movement and especially in modern time the conservative arm of it uh, since 1880s and 1920s also share the same continuity from this previous predecessors so what we have been seeing since 1986 or from 1925 or 1923, wherever we are to start the starting point of modern Hindu politics or Hindu nationalism, in, in modern sense, it, they draw he- very heavily from a Sanatan Dharma and these four or five our predecessors who have tried in their capacity to deal with the problems of their time. I have briefly, I mean, I have talk, uh, spoken about um, Arab and uh, Rajput briefly. Lasted over a century, Arab were repulsed. Territories east of Sindhus were regained. Most of population was converted back to Dharmic fold. That is the most important feature of this particular era. That uh, Bappa Rawal, Deval Rishi, Bhashadar, Mithatiti, after Shastra Vijay, there was a Dharma Vijay. 
this shashtaka and dharma vijay is a very famous dichotomy used by ashoka ki dharma vijay is superior to shastra vijay but savarkar has reputed it very beautifully that there cannot be a dharma vijay if there is no shastra vijay preceding it this again famous verse from uh, ramayan which ramcharitamana says bhaya bin hoye na priti and when samudra was not giving the way after three three days of tapashtarya by sri ram teen divas tak panth manga de rupati sindhu kinare he simply threatened samudra to to you know to evaporate him and that threat worked the tapashtarya did not work the threat of brahmastra worked and sindhu dehadrat rahit rahikar agina charan so shastra vijay has to precede adharma vijay this has been I mean, this was most successfully demonstrated by our ancestors during early rajput and chalukya era against arabs vijayanagar and swami vidarendra swami again i demonstrated i briefly touched upon it two young two people forcibly converted converted back to hinduism by a shankaracharya of shingeri peet and uh, starting a movement which basically saved south india from whatever that was ravaging rest of india for almost 300 400 years i mean to give a example there is not a single ancient temple standing in india north of krishna river whichever temples have existing today are rebuilt by marathas most of them not all either by marathas or some in rajputana built rebuilt by rajputs but the really ancient one 1000 year old 1500 year old ones 2000 year old ones they are all been decimated throughout india so this is the fact that why we see ancient temples why do we still see bhradeshwar temple in tanjavur it has not been desecrated so far it is thanks to vidyaranya swami and his two valiant brothers harira and bukkarai who uh, basically turned the tide and saved dharma from being completely extinguished throughout the geography of india again sangha this map signifies what i am i was trying to tell you ki mewar kingdom was hindavi swarajya 1.4 he had taken care of kutch gujarat sindh malwa multan parts of khandesh parts of mp and eastern mp parts of bundelkhand and was about was almost on the verge of encircling delhi and removing the sultan of delhi from no from throne from the imperium uh, it it could not happen we have battle of khanwa and various other factors various military factors economic factors and strategic factors there were some mistakes which we as uh, indians committed in that war there were some technological superiorities gunpowder cannons etc i'll be dealing with them shortly but these are mistakes but nonetheless vijayanagar and mewar gave the impetus to formation of sindhavi swarajya 2.0 by chhatrapati shivaji in 1645 to 1680 while fighting five different enemies one european one and four alienated indians one foreign moguls adil shah qutub shah nizam shah siddhi abyssinians from africa and portuguese from europe he against all odds forged this particular empire in his career of 30 years from zero uh, this was a frontier of these five forces battling each other so there was a basic it was basically a no man's land it was a war ravaged territory and in this war ravaged territory with the help of geography of the, the local geography and uh, the divine inspiration as ramdas swami calls it 
हृदयारायण प्रेरणा के लिए नारायण वॉज इंस्टॉल्ड इन हृदय एंड हिज लाइट गाइडेड हिज वे थ्रू आउट डिस्क्राइबिंग शिवाजी महाराज ही स्टार्टेड ही बेसिकली स्टेम्ड द रिट्रीट ऑफ इंडिक्स इन इंडिया एंड मेड देम made them think that it is okay to dream to have to think of india being ruled by hindus the one of the last compositions of uh, ramdas swami before he left his uh, mortal body in 1681 is called anand vana bhuvani where he is basically dreaming of an india where uh, mughals have been destroyed and you know, hindus are again ruling india and uh, kashi vishwanath is again in place and you know, so on and so forth so this hope was given to hindus by this endeavor of this particular individual who against all odds managed to fight off five armies and establish a kingdom in all its senses he brought in ancient not just rituals but way of thinking ancient polity value value system he made sure he adapted himself and updated himself on technology front cavalry gunpowder so on and so forth navy most importantly navy so on and so forth thirdly he he tried and actively encouraged the bringing back alienated indians back to indic folds so various people who had been forcibly converted were converted back to hinduism by at the orders of chhatrapati uh, and his successors it continued Throughout the existence of this Hindavi Swarajya 2.0, if I if I may call it, so almost all five six points six aims were attacked at at least attacked and um, to large extent achieved by our ancestors during this iteration of our resurgence. See, this is the fourth time we were trying, and and fourth time we at on the fourth time we were able to address all six aims and no. substantially achieving or completing most of them it's a huge achievement but it has to we have to take into consideration it had to we had to have four unsuccessful uh, rather minimally or uh, limited success endeavors before this for this to succeed and it had to go 700 years if i mean 700 years is a very uh, vague uh, denomination uh, because it doesn't convey the time but it almost 30 to 40 generations so for 40 generations if somebody has forgotten to rule how a 41st generation will start thinking of india as a power how will he will devoid of any parampara of formulating defense policies foreign policies military doctrines you know revenue policies so on and so forth the de novo synthesis while retaining the sanatanatva is fascinating aspect after 27 years war bajirao expanded this swarajya into samrajya i have dealt with it in very detail in my previous talk it reached its zenith in the time of middle peshwas nana saheb and madhavrao ahat tanjavar tahat peshawar katak se katak from peshawar to tanjavar from peshawar in north tanjavar in south gujarat in east bengal in west almost all of india was brought under control or was brought under direct influence by hindus after 700 years most most importantly punjab region because punjab has been the the it has been the highway of all the central asian invaders since time since time immemorial this particular dilemma is it's our uh, main ye ki whether to 
how a power center sitting in pune who has conquered india after 700 years think of prioritizing the reconquest of india how you no know, it's it's a strategic decision to make because we have limited number of armies we are talking about medieval armies we are not talking about modern armies or mongol armies which can have multi which can be multiple uh, deployed in multiple theaters simultaneously marathas were different from it from our previous iterations we marathas had two three various armies deployed in two three various sectors but uh, for north only one army was available because others were installed in south and west and with how to how to prioritize the conquest while taking into consideration the economic part of it the military industrial complex part of it how to fuel our expansion whilst not overstretching ourselves and uh, being hungry in eventually we ended up making that exact decision or that exact mistake which is the topic of panipat which i again dealt with in my previous week but this this thought process of pune court in 1750s ki to aim to complete the dream of chatrapati is given it has to be done how to prioritize how to manage how to deploy the pan indian armies while maintaining maintaining the coordinations while maintaining the economics while maintaining the coffers of the state are being replenished either by uh, by hook or crook they resorted to various unsavory tactics chauthai etc etc they had to be done because the trade was completely demolished by mughals uh, by uh, in the preceding centuries so they had to a update their armies and there was no economy to fuel that update updating Uh, this was the same problem which russia faced just prior to first world war same because military upgradation is very expensive trade has to fulfill that financial deficit uh, but in non existent trade what to do so this is a very unique problem which maratha or hindavi swarajya at this point had to face because we were never in this position before this we never had to look at a pan indian uh, situation uh, with whilst maintaining the economic and uh, other policies and foreign policies how to deal with shah of iran how to deal with central asians how to deal with the, the british the, it's a very new and very different position we were in for the first time in in those many centuries to tackle all these problems simultaneously which we are today nowadays we do it with quite quite ease but we have the knowledge and the experience of our ancestors of what they did and what we should do and what we should not do what we should not have done was of course going into punjab before liberating ganga valley because punjab was war ravaged and uh, the return on investment if i could use the word of controlling punjab was much longer nana saheb peshwa in his final uh, just prior to panipat had uh, spoken to dattari sindhya to abandon punjab and go towards east to take care of najib shuja and bengal and then punjab can be taken care of in by subsequent generations but without you no know, taking care of our back we went and opened a two front war to uh, to to put in a simple way and we were found in a pincer between ganga based alienated indian umma headed by najib and shuja and a foreign uh, umma signified by abdali and we were between rock and hard place and hence panipat happened when there are various other reasons to it but the strategic or geopolitical reason for it is we should not have entered punjab before taking care of bengal and east but the thought process which went into it 
and what we can learn from it today is the whole point of this particular talk the second important considerations which is really very relevant even today is the activation of islamic ummah so ummah is this islamic brotherhood pan islamism wherein uh, the i have to mention this one particular point that uh, the sense of geography amongst muslims is much better than amongst hindus especially medieval hindus because muslims all over know about what's happening in palestine know about what's happening in mecca medina they, they are connected by this uh, network of madrasas and mosques and roaming qazis and mullahs etc so they have had a they may not know where exactly the coordinates of makkah madina and palestine is but they know something is happening to our people in that those far away lands this sense of belongingness of a muslim in madurai or in kerala to a muslim in uh, palestine or in france or in algeria is very you know it's something to it's a very important factor which uh, our maybe our ancestors did not take into consideration but we at the hindsight we have to see it that umma was activated whenever the threat was on the political dominance of islam on in india somehow they, they, it's a trigger point until a point can they can be pushed after the point they are activated this is what happened when shah wali gave the call of jihad against marathas that kafirs are reclaiming india what are we doing and shuja shia and sunni shuja and najib came together there are various other factors of course various other factors there are political and coercion various other factors but it is it will be foolish of us to ignore the activation of umma concept when we are speaking of the mistakes or the geopolitical considerations that our our ancestors had to deal with in 1750s we did not have the experience of this pan islamic umma activation in 1680s or in 1590 we were pretty localized in vijayanagar vijayanagar had this particular ye when all the five muslim uh, sultanates in maharashtra and you know, the central india they united to defeat vijayanagar at talikot so 200 years ago something similar had happened but the memory of it was not very fresh in the policy makers in 1750s uh, where the similar activation happened and there is no analog of activation of umma in amongst hindus because are very totally different value systems are totally different civilizational entities so at in 1750s the peshwas and the policy makers had to deal with this completely new concept of activation of umma which you know which bridges all the gaps for meeting one desire one goal is quite new so this is one important lesson that we now in hindsight should remember and they in that in those shoes i mean it's a very uh, unenviable position i find when i think of sudarshir rao bhau uh, with all those you know armies and uh, other thing we we know about more or less about panipat again i will not go into battle per se because it is a i don't like to speak only of hindu defeats hindus have this habit of focusing only on our defeats we have not uh, spoken enough of our victories we spoke we speak less of attack but we speak more of panipat so it is very it's very hindu way of looking at our negatives first then positive so on and so forth but it's very unenviable an unenviable position for sadashiv rao how to be in when uma is activated and uh, there is no there is nothing analogous 
in our side or in hindu sides to activate there is no key which will counter activation of homa and uh, we know panipat happened it was a it was a stalemate battle per se was uh, defeated we had to retreat temporarily but uh, the the damage which we did to northwestern invaders was so huge that as i said in my earlier in the same talk that it com- almost completely it, it basically sapped the strength of north northwestern invaders which had been ravaging india for since rigvedic times to be honest so that is a very big achievement per se of um, of this particular empire the second uh, part of the policy makers is a technology access to horses as we know india is a hot country how the the quality of horses which are grown or breeded in india is slightly lower than as compared to central asian ones or arabic ones height weight endurance so on and so forth and numbers uh, rajputs had the advantage of having a katiyawadi breed of horse shivaji maharaj was lucky in that front that by that time we had mastered breeding deccani breed of horse in india so whilst uh, horses in india or in south were of short stature at least we had enough horses we always always had to import horses shivaji maharaj was always importing horses importing gunpowder importing guns importing steel so on and so forth he is always you know and he made it sure he is importing from britishers because islamic powers won't sell it to them access to salt peter and gunpowder the, the raw material for gunpowder rock salt it's predominantly found in modern day telangana the ancient mines near golconda and all again we had we did not have access to those mines that is one more reason why we we frequently say why didn't bajirao or peshwas finish off nizam of hyderabad his artillery was superior and we did not have we have to understand that it by this time the gunpowder and the gunpowder based weapons have been continuously evolving in maharana sangha's time if we fire a cannon you have to wait for one and a half hours for cannon to cool down so that we can fire the next round the time has been drastically reducing the range has been improving the amount the, the, the chemistry of the gunpowder had been improving the number of steel the chemistry of the alloy the steel had been improving so artillery was becoming becoming or gunpowder based weapons muskets and all were becoming more and more deadly and more and more important and more and more important factor while determining the military doctrine should the military be cavalry centric or should it be artillery centric this again was a very important decision by sadashiva bhau to fight under covering fire of artillery so this the formation of marathas and panipat was that artillery will fire the cavalry will charge and return charge and return while the entire camp makes move towards the river that was the point but all was to happen under the firing covering fire of artillery this is a very modern concept and napoleon 40 years later mastered it you know he invented many new things but in my opinion as far as i know bhau was one of the first individuals in the world to understand the importance of artillery and how it is going to change and and, and to his credit artillery did deliver i mean maratha artillery was blazing you know, fantastically albeit they were heavy artillery many times they were over range but the the handling of left front by ibrahim garbi and his artillery was fascinating and for a time being battle was moving towards bhaus uh, side predominantly fueled by the performance of gunpowder and artillery based weapons they had in their in their army so this military doctrine but the old i mean the 
even world war 1 armies had to fight this attitude it took de- million deaths per se in uh, belgium and in uh, in marne where cavalrys were mowed down by machine guns to understand that age of horse is over finally over so it took if if i if i may say so from panipat to 1914 1915 to for military leaders to finally accept that horse is no longer a cavalry charge no unit it's only for you know, movement and all so it it's a very lesson learned very harsh way but uh, and it it is learned after millions of deaths from many sides how was one of the first amongst the first people who had to encounter this particular problem how to change a cavalry dominated army to artillery set piece space battle piece no where cavalry is supporting fighting a supporting role and how to convince it to your officers and your cadres how to have a command and control system where a, a command from how or from commander is unambiguously conveyed to the last soldier at in various platoons or various companies and they are followed a drill how how much how many steps to take how many, where to stop where, where to retreat what are the orders it's a very it's a very fascinating thing to think of ki so many new things had to be invented and dealt with due to changing technology so it's a very evolving scenario and we do not look at history from this particular point of view we don't consider engineering and the advances in science and how they affect our warfare our way of life over it even while we are experiencing it in our own lives in modern day our life 20 years ago is basically different than our ours is today in internet of things iot era so similarly the area of a time of bajirao is drastically different from the time of sudashura bhau where he had to deal with the camel mounted artillery of afghan ability to fill multiple armies in multiple theaters it's a very modern concept most of the medieval armies had one army if you look at alexanders the world conquering if you can pardon the language he didn't conquer the world but uh, as he started alexander the great he had one army most probably 50 to 80000 soldiers and he conquered from greece egypt uh, mesopotamia persia until some until india uh, until indus river until chedam river it is one army if you can xerox somehow we can xerox no, photocopy that one army into two armies three armies four armies and if you can do it 100 times 200 times then we have a modern army wherein germany could have or soviet russia russia could deploy 200 divisions no, multiple theaters very similar to what mongols did in 1200s mongols while when they attack khwarizmi khwarizmian empire in central asia samarkand multiple attack points or no? multiple independent army attacking from various points the sheer coordination between this five six armies attacking at same point it was like mongols were coming from some higher league to fight some amateurs that's how they of course dominated europeans and central asians and, uh, and persians and chinese maratha army or hindavi swarajya 2.0s army in 1800 1700s showed this particular concept it, marathas had four five armies deployed or deployable armies there was an army in gujarat there was an army in nagpur to take care of eastern india there was an army in karnataka there was an army which which went with bhau the real one the, i mean the, the cream the cream of maratha army and another army was on route to panipat under under the leadership of peshwa himself so the ability to to field multiple armies and to coordinate between them it's a very modern concept again 
and uh, we had to evolve and adapt because it is it is impossible otherwise to rule india unless we have multiple armies which can independently have their own command and control system so this lesson to multi to fill multiple armies in multiple theaters whilst coordinating with each other it's a very modern concept and we we started learning it during uh, this particular era in 1750s 1750s this this particular 5 6 decades final decades umma on the other hand only one had only one army or two armies if we could count najib but najib's army or mughal army was namesake the real army was of abdali and uh, that uh, that one army was devastated whilst indians or hindus had still seven armies left to field in various status that is why we reconquered india I mean, within within two months of uh, this victory in panipat abdali basically ran away he gave back punjab to the east of satluj back to marathas so there was basically status quo ante only thing that was lost was family of peshwa and family of sindhias they lost their family members and of course soldiers died but uh, there was no um, strategic debilitating impact due to this particular defeat and psychological stalemate and it was not debilitating because hindus could field multiple armies throughout geography of india by then even if rajputs and jats were jats were neutral in this particular episode as i said the only crisis which emerged was eradication of these leaders from peshwa and sindhi family mantle was passed on to madhav rao madhav sindhia and nana padnavis and the greatest blow in my opinion and in the opinion of many learned historians was the early death of madhav rao peshwa at age of 27 to due to tuberculosis there is a very famous science fiction novel by uh, dr jayendra narayika the famous astrophysicist where he imagines the time where madhav rao did not die you know somehow he gets cured and he imagines india having a reformation like japan had you know india becoming a modern state under long lived madhav rao peshwa who lives in this scenario in alternate history age of 60 70 rules india until 1820 there is no battle of assai there is no treaty of assai there is no uh, loss of patpadganj there is no battle of khadki there is no battle of india remains you no know, the way i showed in my previous map india remains a hindavi swarajya while modernizing militarily strategically economically so he has of course it's a science fiction and it's an alternate history but it's a very fascinating fascinating scenario nonetheless because we were in the process of doing so we were stumbling we were you no know, we were falling apart we were you no know, having our lessons learned some very easily some in very harsh manner but just like every any other nation or any other civilization we were stumbling and learning the lessons needed to be learned in ever in 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 you know, while entering into a modern world dominated by gunpowder and industrial revolution so on and so forth so the greatest blow was the loss of this particular one man who had this particular integrity and vision to sail us through through that tumultuous time death of mother rao at age of 27 I've, it's it's my fantasy. If I could go back in time, I just I I could just give him a course of streptomycin or uh, rifampicin. You know, enough pills to last for six months. Just take two pills a day and just live. And again, yeah, fascinating. It's a it's a very good uh, dream to think of uh, how we might have evolved. We might we may have had something analogous to Meiji Restoration in Europe or in Japan. Sorry, where Japan modernized without being Western. Uh, it didn't happen hence we are here the last point is access to steel and famines 
there is a very big famine which is very underplayed in 1790 to 1800 in area which we which was controlled by maratha in hindavi swarajya maharashtra karnataka mp gujarat no mean the heartland around 12 million people died in this dojibara famine and this this famine and the deaths caused in this famine was a very debilitating effect on ability ability of hindavi swarajya to draw cadre to his armies ability of hindavi swarajya to dominate india for 100 years was its inability to fill multiple armies and for that you have to draw cadre from all parts of india there were people from karnataka maharashtra gujarat mp modern day mp rajasthan haryana up odisha bengal which are forming maratha army or we call as i prefer to call hindavi swarajya army the ability to draw the cadre is reduced for even if for a short period when there is a sudden loss of life in due to famines this is one of the very important factors which is usually underplayed Uh, as to why we lost to british in uh, 1802 in battle of assai all these reasons led to the decline physical quality of maratha army 1802 to 1805 as we call second anglo maratha war or anglo hindavi swarajya war which in which actually britishers east india company won and got the territory uh, of india as their to rule it was formalized in 1818 but the war was to be honest lost in 1805 the nations of holkar finally surrendered to the east india company generals after 45 years of war um, all these reasons led to the loss of 1802 and 1818 but these these reasons are very important for us to remember because if we look at our india as it is today we have i mean if we disregard uh, british rule and mughal rule they were they, they were decidedly foreign rules the last known indian configuration or indian political player who ruled india as per indian values was hindavi swarajya so we have to learn from the experiences and the mistakes of what our ancestors did and continue to fulfill their aspirations so that you no know, we are able to fulfill all the six goals which i think uh, are necessary lastly i would like to end my talk on this particular cycle of history so this is this is an off repeating motifs in indian history that every 90 years there is a point of there is a tipping point coming in the history of india where of course there is lot of bloodshed but the tipping point is need not always be bad for indians it can sometimes also be good for indians we have emerged victorious in many in few of these instances but in every instance there is a there has been an activation of umma akbar defeating finally defeating rajputs in 1590s hindavi swarajya formalizing in 1674 and uh, this thing you know uh, 37 year, year old war under aurangzeb who embodies umma who embodies the, the puritanical islam to begin with in 1680 1670s panipat baksar lassi you know emergence of east india company 1857 of course first indian war of independence again kal uh, uh, what kal khuda ka uh, mulk bacha ka and uh, again to it was dominated by umma umma had activated or attempted its activation in 1857 also it again happened in 1940s partition of india uh, demand of pakistan so on and so forth the second tipping point might be coming in 2030s we should be in position from our history and our ancestors to learn from what all has happened 
and how we should adapt so that the sanatan nitnutan dharma continues to prosper in the geography of our motherland india thank you yavanas or the yonas uh, derivations of the ionian is or was a term used for the greek bactrian during the modern and subsequent periods till the early 1st 2nd century c um, not to my knowledge for islamic invaders of the medieval period as mentioned at one point in this talk so i look forward to some explanations on that uh, muslims have been called yavans by marathas in various letters there are many letters describing ki how how can you side with yavans how can how can no? the shiva is himself writing to his own brother his half brother ki you are deploying yavans in your in, in your own army how can you think of winning against me so i agree with you ki yavans the origin of this term yavan is from ionian from greek but in 1700s it has been uh, liberally used to to describe muslims and islamic in a power center sorry muslim as a people as well in general mastani is called yavani by various contemporary mastani was uh, again daughter of chatrasal bundela and his one of persian concubine and she was lover and wife of uh, bajirao peshwa so the contemporary in his own family uh, peshwa family called mastani as yavani one who is from muslim lineage so Okay, that brings me to a very interesting thought. I just uh, it popped up in my mind. Uh, the movie Baji Rao Mastani. Uh, if you have watched it, is it true or is it a mankara? Yeah, it, it is true, of course. I mean, there was see uh, how to say it. We have this habit of focusing on irrelevant details whilst ignoring the real thing. Yes, he he fell in love with that woman. She loved him back. she was faithful to him she bore him children her children died on panipat defending hindus along with bhau her son samshir bahadur died on panipat field along with saishira bhau but since uh, there was some family issues usually i mean peshwas coming from brahmin caste were not known to marry multiple times kshatriyas are allowed to marry multiple times are allowed to have multiple wives usually brahmins did not at least in that contemporary era bajirao was a path breaker in many ways so from a, from a conservative point of view uh, it is very disconcerting to find uh, your son bringing a girl from you no know, and in time in 1720s in 17 that society was so shocked from the 27 year old war against muslims that son bringing a girl from a different societal background against whom our ancestors only two generations ago had fought a very bloody battle is a very difficult uh, thing to address to so there was of course a lot of opposition within the peshwa family but uh, it is more popularized by a novelist called ns ingamdar in marathi on which he wrote the novel called rao and on which the movie is based and it is of course one of the most important parts of bajji rao's life but defining bajirao on mastani is a very uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's unjust in my opinion 
the fact that he conquered half of india and did not do the single battle is uh, i mean his his battles are taught in uh, military schools in america and europe how he maneuvered his armies and all but we focus on his love life it's <laughs> Uh, Rahul says, uh, my question is: Is it appropriate to keep using the word India for our country owing to its foreign origin and in inadequacy to reflect our true identity? So, ma'am, when we speak in, I mean, when I speak in Marathi, or I'm sure when you speak in your Hindi or your Marathi, we refer to India as Bharat. Ami Bharat Bharato, Bharat Mala Desh hai. We we speak we say Bharat very instinctively, since we are speaking in foreign language. it has become a part of our habit of course we will like to inculcate habit of saying bharat every time but it needs a very conscious effort nowadays and while speaking in in the flow it's very difficult to keep in mind that bharat 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 but i agree with you ki bharat has this uh, adhidevik connotations of being a bhudevi being a goddess and especially in modern times where she has been commemorated as vande mataram vande mataram as mother goddess it has it invokes very different feelings than india so of course it is uh, it would be best if we if if we all could inculcate that habit but i think it will take it, it's a matter of time and we have to spend time on it uh, thank you so much for such a you know wonderful talk i mean uh, for a pleasant evening this was a amazing conversation is it all right if i if what you have discussed today and uh, keep my questions in current times would that be appropriate I mean, the whole point of itihas is to be rooted in modern times. We have to learn. The whole purpose of itihas is to learn and you know not to repeat those mistakes again. Absolutely. I thank you so much for that. So my first question is about the six-fold challenge, beautifully portrayed by you. I think uh, it, in a very crisp way, one can actually understand what exactly we need to achieve and what are the challenges to for us. Now that finally Hindus have their own state, whether we call it a Hindu Rashtra or not, doesn't matter. It is a Hindu state. and uh, so now if we talk about the six fold challenge is it still relevant and if it is relevant how are we doing right now that's my question number 1 um my question number 2 is about the islamic ummah that you talked about and the last slide was beautifully portraying it every time you see that what has happened to us islamic ummah has been activated now if that is the problem which means we need to unite the dis- you know disfranchised hindus um we can see to that an extent the national political party today is doing that saying forget your jati you are a hindu first yeah. and doesn't matter which faith you belong to you are a hindu this is a civilization that we are talking about but i do not see a lot of dharm gurus doing that exceptions are like sadguru but then i don't see major mats coming forward doing that your points on that one and the third one will be about technological consideration you know we have brave warriors we have so many examples uh but then it looks like we are always chasing technological warfare yeah. you know our enemies are always one step ahead of us now finally that india has taken part in global arms race wherein we are making our missiles selling it do you think that somewhere we are coming at par with with the with globally yes so um, these are the three questions yes i will answer the last one first yes we are uh, we have to understand that when was the first chemical engineering first chemical chemical engineer passed out in india it was in 1940s no it's very 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 uh, in very near future so uh, i mean i will give the example of tejas ability to build tejas lca tejas remarks 
the way in which india had to struggle to build a 4.5 generation empire i mean i i don't know how familiar are you with metallurgy but i know from reading in various forums uh, we are still struggling with the engine that engine the the blades of engine has to be in form of crystal they are not welded or molded they grow as a crystal they are called single crystal blade and we are yet to master that technology nobody will give us it nobody will give it to us and because of that kaveri engine is heavy so hence it can it cannot power tejas hence we have to buy the engine for our indigenous tejas from america so this small small things you know it's very at the core of it is ability to master various engineering technologies which you know which have in case of war will can we be assured that supply of f414 engines or f404 engines will be uninterrupted uninterrupted to keep on building tejas in house if it's interrupted then what it's a tejas you know chassis without engine so all such things matter when the crunch time comes hence it is very important i believe in example with tejas and tejas being the flagship we are closing that gap because we now have a critical mass of engineers and scientists who are at par with global standards we still are lagging behind but uh, in various domains in my domain biotechnology we are we are having this critical mass now for the first time in maybe 1000 years which are very close to the global you know, cutting edge so i see on the third question point of view we will be very easily uh, we, we can do it we can do it very easily in next 10 20 years and currently focus of the government is on that way which brings you to the second question what government uh, doing things and polit- uh, gurus not doing things this is one more thing uh, which bajira uh, outed i mean i i hate to speak in terms of caste but uh, the fact that he brought in an obc leadership bolkers and sindhias if we if we use a modern term sindhias were shepherds uh, sorry bolkers were shepherds and uh, they brought they he bajira basically brought a talent from wherever he could find into the top rung of no it was a cutting edge the the, knife, the wedge which cut the the islamic or the abrahamic political hole was the the churning of society from top to bottom and that happened via politics gurus have always been chasing it has to happen politically because there has to be an aihik uh, motivation to do that you can't inculcate adhyatmik drives in, in everybody no matter what caste you are born in but you have to bring you have to go that societal journey and that journey has to happen through politics or through economics as the societal and as the economic uh, it changes it rises people start thinking of higher drives who am i why am i here who am i koham is a very very beautiful question but it basically requires that your stomach is full after your stomach is full then you ask answer uh, start looking at am i atma or am i ankara i am where i have come from where will i go so and so forth. for that to happen it has to happen through politics and economics is in my opinion so gurus in this aspect will always be chasers even bappa rawal's time when i said dharma vijay was history vijay it was bappa rawal's rajput who defeated arabs first and after 50 60 years of bappa rawal bashkar devil rishi and all came to you know 
to bring back to do her vapsi on mass scale but for that the first political upheaval had to happen so in my opinion gurus will always be chasing one in this kind thirdly gurus do not have physical army to protect them if they, even if they want to do it example is shuddhanand in 1920 he was killed by abdul latif and uh, abdul rashid in 1920s because he was an arya samaj he was converting reconverting in millions in lakhs and he was assassinated and nobody could do anything about it because he didn't have he didn't have a army of you know 1000 people with guns to protect him so gurus always are meant to be defenseless that's the whole point we have designed our system in such a way ki physical power should remain different separate from intellectual power so which necessitates that physical power should dominate first after physical power ensures safety of everybody gurus will do their job this is my way and what is the first question i forgot i'm so sorry i'll repeat that so about the sixth pole challenge that you beautifully explained yes. now that finally hindus have the hindu state how exactly are we doing we do not have a hindu state we have a prospect of a hindu state we are where we were in 1740s something good is visible but we are not there yet we will be there yet we would have been there yet had we won panipat you know that one activation has to be overcome that test we have not completed we have not we have not come that hurdle we have not crossed it so until that hurdle is crossed it's difficult to have a hindu state materialize but we have a prospect of it so we should be happy that no we are still in the game we are where we were in 1750s it's visible but hurdle is also visible and it's very enormous hurdle and it's uh, because we have to conflict between you no know, individuals and ideology and we should not it's a very mixed up uh, issue ki how to ibrahim khan gardi was fighting for dharma he was a gardi he was a muslim but whatever his actions were were helping dharma he was opposed by various people within dharmic fold because for him being a muslim but how to utilize these forces how to you know, that's the role of a king and society as a whole so i i think we are in competent hands and they know what how to you know how to engineer through tight situations i only hope ki they continue and they adapt and they nurture the next generation of leaders who are as adapt adapt as them because otherwise no what happened to miss bismarck in first world war he was such a masterful politician and he created such a complex diplomatic machine that after him nobody could run it and world disintegrated to world war 1 that the web of alliances which bismarck built was so complex while he was alive it was fantastic no running like no 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 coming like a well oiled engine but when take him out of the engine out of the situation and nobody knows how to run that private machine so i hope we nurture the generations of leaders who are as capable as the current ones that when the current ones are no more the drive will continue my question is uh, when we talk about the uh, our epics and the last major epic that uh, the battle of uh, kurukshetra that is mahabharata we uh, we read in uh, mahabharata the weaponry that we had uh, was you know we had weapons of great great destruction so what happened to uh, that technology 
I mean, when we uh, come to you know 1600s or 1700s, we see that we are struggling with the uh, the canons and 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 probably uh, such such stuff. So, what happened to that that know-how? Was it real or because see, Ved Vyasa created Mahabharata and uh, he was contemporary. I mean, he he was there. So, when he mentions of those uh, weapons, what happened to them uh, in the meanwhile? There are two ways of looking at it. One. um i don't know whether a nuclear bomb existed in uh, when if you look if you go by um, uh, nilesh ji's date 5000 bc or if you go by mm pandit's date 3000 bc we i don't know but i know for sure we haven't yet found a screw in archaeology so i mean if if you were able to build a flying aeroplane and a new we should find some screw no it's a basic tool or a machine Uh, so i don't know how see, how seriously to take the descriptions of the machines but the point of mahabharat is not the description of the weapon i will come back i will assume that it is true and i'll come back through the point through internal reference also but the point of mahabharat sir is shanti parva by bhishma to teach us what dharma is dharma and artha is and geeta by shri krishna to teach how moksha is Entire story of Mahabharat. It is a history, of course. It's a history. But the moral, or the two morals of why Veda Vyasa took pains to write this one lakh verse long epic, was to drive home the points mentioned in these two parts, Shanti Parva and Gita, so that we are benefited to achieve Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. So the purpose of record writing Mahabharat is not to show that Pushpak ya. ब्रह्मास्था या पाशुपदास्था नो इट वॉज टू टेल यू हाउ टू लिव ए एंड हाउ टू अचीव मोक्ष टू बी नाउ सेकेंडली वी अज्यूम इट इज ट्रू एंड वी गो फ्रॉम नरेटिव पॉइंट ऑफ व्यू अर्जुन हिमसेल्फ डिड नॉट टीच ऑल दिस वेपनरी टू हिज सन्स टू टू परीक्षित टू हिज नॉट सन हिज ग्रैंड सन अर्जुन एंड सात्य की डिस्ट्रॉयड ऑल द नॉलेज ऑफ वेपनरी आफ्टर देर डेथ that knowledge has stopped and with the west mentions because that weaponry was the reason why ashwatthama killed sleeping sons not just sleeping sons he killed the very fetus in the womb of uh, uttara when he releases brahmastra and then arjun with the brahmastra in response and you know vedavyas and brahma rishi come, brahma comes to stop them that is the point after which Arjun and Satyaki had repository of all the weapons. Everybody else was killed, who could know it, and they decided not to teach it to the next generation, to Parikshit. And Veda Vyas mentions it. So, from internal point of view, it is very clear that it was a conscious decision by Arjun not to. You know, this sort of war should not happen again. This was the reason. And from again, from our point of view, I don't know how they, how much they, maybe he was Arjun was really. Uh, efficient in eradicating all the traces of technology which could make the weapons hence we are not able to find anything in archaeology uh, but um, from both points of view it was a conscious decision ki nahi there should not be such war again it's a naive uh, wish because humans always find an excuse to to fight with each other and they will fight with the best weapons they have and they will always innovate new weapons it's not a question just an observation and i just realized why uh, during your talk that the temples were 
basically you know destroyed by the muslim invaders uh, during last year so in in delhi for example i really find a mention of an ancient temple even though delhi has been um, there for probably more than a millennium yes. now yes so the only temple that i could uh, find a mention of was probably the temple of uh, yogmaya in mehroli probably yes and other than that i i don't think there is any this is something which i just realized yes almost all temples are built in 1760 1770s yeah correct correct north of krishna river south of krishna river there is many ancient temples yeah due to you know because until there they didn't go that far and lasted that long but uh, yeah even in maharashtra there are very few temples which are older than peshwa era once which are there older which were to gad gaye the they were under under earth they were unearthed like elora ajanta they are also desecrated but they were mostly you know unknown so the hence this they, they were saved but uh, the normal one trambakeshwar was destroyed and the mosque was built on it trambakeshwar ka aaj ka temple is built by nanasaheb peshwa in 1750 so it is yeah i will ask for question on future i will not ask in past i will try to go in future when we go, do a swat analysis of india or you can say hinduism we have a very uncertain future when we do it we have a very uncertain future okay this is uh, our advantages but there are very much weaknesses so there is a very uncertain future if we say we have a very good hindu government but it's not doing anything for our hindus people so we will see just like we have a very good people who knows technology but they are not working for india they are working for someone else so what are your views how to regain that how to uh, get us what analysis best so we will have no uncertainty sir i don't know how to read future future a is always uncertain and our scriptures tell us that it is basically our karma today which becomes our bhagya tomorrow so only way to make a good future is to do a good karma today in our individual capacity and us as a rashtra we have to do good karma so that no future become become secure but either ways no matter how good karma we do there are various other factors in play which will always make it and no, there will be a uncertainty always and that's what makes and hinduism acknowledges this, this uncertainty Hence, it's hence the life is worth living. In my opinion, if you know everything, what's going to happen tomorrow, it's well. So only thing we 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 have in our hand is to do the karma right in today in present tense. We can't do anything about history. We don't know what will happen in future. Only thing we have in our present. It's a very cliched line, but it's it's really true. Where says I think Hindu state does not mean Hindu Rashtra. Rashtra will require a cultural unity established and recognized by the world. Today, a student president of Oxford had to resign because of Jai Shri Ram post. This should not happen. The Western world has to accept Hindutva positively rather than treating it as a communal force. So, what narratives do you think need to be spread for the global communities? For us to be accepted as a ye. Ma'am, only thing, I mean, Bhaya Bhaya Hoi na Priti. The reason why I mean, I I I am opposed to the way China deals with various things, but the reason China is being, I mean, I when I was in the, I will give an example. When I was doing my MS, my PhD in Denmark, there are very quite a few Chinese students sponsored by Chinese governments. So that we had this 
kitchens in every department where people could bring their lunch and they could heat it up and eat so in every kitchen during february there was this dragons and all red red everything red and uh, nothing happened when there was gudi padwa or there was diwali you know there was no diyas <laughs> lighting up so people respect strength people respect those who uh, speak about their strength loudly and again and again so we, even if one person had to resign from oxford chair for saying jai shri ram only recourse is to say you know million people say jai shri ram they can't fire million people and uh, we are today not so deen and durbal as we were 100 years ago that we were a pushovers we are no matter how no wherever we place ourselves in individual capacity in national ladder or international ladder we still are a force to reckon with so only way out is to for thousand people around at in, in oxford you to say jai shri ram i think people in radgars are doing it today against adrishko uh, pushke i don't know how to pronounce the name but hindu americans are rallying against uh, the hindu phobic posts and narrative of adrishko risking their peer age their grades and whatever students most they care about is grades but kids are risking their grades right so even if one person had to resign from oxford for saying jai shri ram other hindu kids in oxford had to shout it no shout jai shri ram again and again while explaining them what ram stands for that's the only way we have to move on hence i said it's karma that's a karma we have in our I should give my answer, but uh, I think it was a half answer because when small analysis, small analysis, we uh, give off threat means present situations which we see and we uh, do it is threat, weakness, op- uh, opportunity, and threat. But if in the with India we see there are more threats, okay, and we are not working on our threats. We are working on our strength. We are working on our weaknesses. This we are uh, we are trying to take opportunity, but we are not working on threats anything. Okay, and the opportunity also, but we are working. We are not working at that level where all the world is working. So my question was that that how to overcome our threats? Okay, which will the the, the threats which are, that I can see right now are you know, technological one one of the threats. We are working on it. There are some threats are ideological. The, I mean, the whole point of Sangam Talks is to, you know, build an ecosystem which will cater to such threats. So, expecting things from government, I mean, especially in modern current setup, is is very limited thing to do. We, as a community that that we are doing right now, is basically addressing in our capacity, like the binary of who helped Ram to build Setu, that one small squirrel. In our capacity, we are trying to make that Setu. Millions, billion, like there are one billion of us. If, you know, if we if we all become squirrels, Setu will be built. But uh, I mean, it's difficult to envision for a one person to to envision all threats, even if it is Narendra Modi or you no know, whoever. We have to find threats in our vicinity and try to address it in our capacity in and as per our competencies. If I am a biotechnologist, I have to try and invent new things in India. If you are an IT scientist or if you are a I don't know. When whoever you are, if you are a politician, you are economist. You have to try to you know identify and mitigate the threats at your level. And if you are not, if they are larger threats, you have to you know intimate the people who are in position to mitigate them. 
but apart from that unless there's a co- coordinated concerted efforts by all of us is difficult we tried we mitigated various threats in our previous iteration in 1750s some threats remained some threats we couldn't do it in spite of our strengths I mean, we we saw it. They knew what is going to come, but there was something. There was nothing Bhau could do when he see he seeing Uma being activated at that position. You know, you are at point of no return. So many times, many threats you see are materializing, and you can't do anything about it. You have to play on your own strengths. So I mean, only answer I can give is to find your own strengths and try to mitigate threats that you see at your level, and then let you know. I, mean, I I believe that they all devotees will ensure we will exist if we do our karma right. Or if nothing else, then Kalki Maharaj will come and destroy everything. I I rather hope that it does not happen. We do our karma enough that Bhagwan remains in Vaikuntha and we can remain on earth and <laughs> continue existing. As there's a saying that those who forget their own history are condemned to repeat it. I think you're doing a wonderful job by making us uh, recollect our history and remember it and learn from it. and uh, what gives solace is that we have always been attacked by invaders and yavanas since the dasharajana war in the rigveda and uh, this is not the worst time we have also seen far much worse times since the rigveda and that gives us solace and also as sanjay dikshit ji said that uh, our time is quasi cyclic yes. so we have these chaturyugs once the kalyug is over satyug has to come yes, yes. so that gives a lot of solace to us and we have to learn from our history to fight back uh these invaders which have always been there and it's not it's not a, a worst time we've always seen more far more worst time somebody else a new asura always comes man always comes but devas are always there to deal with them you can't wish off asura there is no kayamat in <laughs> eternal heaven will come no new asura will come we just have to as churchill said we have to keep buggering on on the beaches we will be there our kids will be there